Welcome back to another episode of Brawn and Brains. With me today, I have Michael Kaplan, a brain injury lawyer. So Michael, can you please introduce yourself a little bit for everyone? Well, good day to you, Rachel. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast this morning. As you said, I'm a, I'm a brain injury lawyer. I'm a personal injury lawyer who specializes in representing individuals who have sustained a brain injury, whether as a result of trauma or medical malpractice. And, and I do that in New York primarily. My name of my law firm is called DeCaro and Kaplan. And our website is www.brainlaw.com. I've been in practice for the past 40 years. I've chaired the American Academy of Justice Traumatic Brain Injury Litigation Group. For nine years, I was the president of the Brain Injury Association of New York State. I chaired the tort section of the New York County Lawyers Association. I currently chair the New York State Traumatic Brain Injury Coordinating Council, and I teach a course in brain injury law at the George Washington University Law School. So for the past 40 years, our practice has been personal injury and medical malpractice and as that might sound we represent victims of negligence oh my gosh well that is a lot to take in that's really awesome that you were able to do so much while still being a a practicing lawyer being a law professor enough i feel like would take up a lot of my time i'd love to hear more about your life before law i'm starting with your undergrad studies where did you go i went undergraduate i went to new york university and I thought, interestingly enough, that I wanted to be a physician. And I started off pre-med with biology. And then I took one day of chemistry and I decided I was never going to be a doctor. <laughs> and that, was, that was for certain. And, and I just switched gears and, and I was always interested in politics and government. So I switched gears and I became a political science major with, with, a, with a minor in economics. And I said, okay, let's, let's see how this turns out. And I shifted gears and I said, well, let's think about the law as the next step in, in life. And, and I thought I was going to go to law school and become a corporate lawyer. But things take little turns. And I, and I went to Brooklyn Law School, which is a great law school. And I became interested in, in the area of personal injury, probably because the professors that I had in that particular area were very good and I related to them. So I got a summer jobs in the area of personal injury and I got a first job with a major law firm in, in, in the area of personal injury with a very prominent personal injury lawyer who took me under his wing and things just kind of took off from there. No real chart and I think for, for your listeners as well it, it's good to know that you sometimes just have to let things happen. And sometimes planning things out is not the, the best way to go because a roadmap in your career always doesn't, doesn't work right. There are a lot of twists and turns in the road and sometimes you just have to go on faith. But most importantly, 
I, I could recommend is doing the things that you like. Because one thing for certain I could say is every day I wake up in the morning and I'm happy to be doing the things that I'm, I'm, I'm going to be doing. I think that's great advice. And especially about the planning. This year has been absolutely insane, I think, for everybody with the pandemic happening. So I don't think anybody can follow their plan very much. So it's nice to know that even before the pandemic, there are still people out there in college still figuring out a plan. So did you take a gap at all between law school and... I'm sorry, can you say that again? Did you take a gap between your undergrad and law school? No, that wasn't popular at that that time. People didn't do that. You just went right in, right into graduate school from, from undergraduate school. Although I did have a, a, a six month hiatus because I graduated um, college in February and I started law school in September. So I did have a period of time where I was, at, where I was able to, to, to work. And I worked for a New York state Senator during that period of time in his office, which was a good introduction to, to government. And he was also an attorney so it gave me some exposure to, to, to the law as well, because his um, government office was within his own private law office. So I got exposure to a little bit of everything. That's really cool. So circling back to kind of like your focus um, within law, how did you choose to focus on specifically victims of brain trauma? You kind of explained shadowing it with your professors and everything, but I feel like that's a really specific kind of realm of, realm of uh, law. Well, again, by accident, things (laughs) just just happened. I was representing a very nice gentleman who was in a horrific car wreck when his car was hit head on by by a truck whose brakes failed because the company didn't properly maintain those brakes. And understandably, my client had some really bad physical injuries, fractures, and those injuries he, he made a great recovery from. And he went back to work in, in a brokerage firm. I won't name, name that firm, um, but he wasn't a broker. He was, in, he was an analyst of some kind. And he went back to work and he couldn't do his job. Why? Well, he, he had memory problems. He had concentration problems. He had the inability to take up new tasks at work, the new assignments that were given to him. He gave, became, in many respects, miserable to be around. His coworkers didn't want to associate with him at lunchtime anymore in the cafeteria. He was ang- an angry person. And this is not the way this, this man was before all, all of this. But when you looked at him, he looked to be fine. He didn't have a limp. He wasn't using a cane. He wasn't in a wheelchair. So, so to, w- w- when you looked at this gentleman to, to an outside observer, everything just seemed perfect. And you would say, wow, you're a very lucky man. You made this great recovery f- from, from this crash. You're back at work. But he wasn't the same. And in order to do my job properly in representing him, I had to understand why this concussion that he sustained in, in this accident was causing him all of these problems. So I started to learn about the brain and brain injuries. And, and I got to tell you, it fascinated me because this is a very interesting and fascinating subject that can affect anyone at, at any time and that we can't see. So I really had to learn and, and I guess go to medical school 
in some respects and, and self-teach myself about that subject. And we had a very successful uh, recovery for him. And we, we had a trial where I brought in prominent witnesses to testify why he was having these these problems. And then again, one thing just leads to, to another. I, I met people in the Brain Injury Association as a result of that, as I was learning about brain injury and I became involved in that association just because I, I was interested in, in the subject matter. And, and again, the road takes all kinds of turns that, that you couldn't plan. When I started to represent this gentleman, I had no idea that this would become my calling. That's so cool. One thing kind of led to another there. Kind of makes, makes me think of what you were just saying about how plans can constantly change. If you'd never had that one case, you might be doing something completely different within law. So growing up, I played soccer a lot. And within girls soccer, there was a huge kind of awakening a little bit when I was younger with the concussion world and headbands for a while were mandatory on the field. I was wondering on a different sport, what were your thoughts on the NFL concussion protocol? Well, I wonder, first, let me tell you that my partner and I, we represented the Brain Injury Association of America in legal proceedings challenging the settlement. And we went to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Then we went to the United States Supreme Court on behalf of the Brain Injury Association of America, challenging the settlement of the NFL case. And, and our argument and our point was that it didn't, wasn't fair for the predominant players who played and sustained traumatic brain injuries and received little or no compensation as a result of this settlement. So, so we challenged that, that settlement in court. Now, your question was, I forgot your question. I'm sorry. What, just what your thoughts were on the NFL concussion protocol. Because okay. I feel like the NFL has such a deep-rooted history with brain injuries, CTE, TBIs. Well, the protocol is only a protocol. Um, if you're going to play football, you're going to sustain a concussion. There's just no two ways about it. Helmets are not going to protect you. Safe tackling is not going to protect you. Football is a concussion delivery system. And inevitably, <laughs> you're going to get a concussion. So if you have a, a protocol, the best protocol is to educate players with the takeaway that concussions can have serious lifetime consequences. And you have to um, respect that, respect the injury, and report your symptoms, be they the physical symptoms of headaches, dizziness, nausea, sensitivity to light, or concentration problems, as we talked about, memory problems, sleep problems, emotional issues, and rest the brain and let the brain heal. Because if you don't, and you sustain a second concussion before that first concussion heals, you, your chances are, are very strong that you're going to have a very poor outcome. So the, 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 the best thing in any protocol is to educate players that you don't want to play through a concussion and just, as, as they say in, in some sports, shake it off. <laughs> and... Um, you want to tell coaches and trainers and other people responsible for player safety. When in doubt, keep that player out. When you think that player had a concussion, 
Don't allow them to go back to play. Make sure that they get medical clearance before they're allowed to return to play. So a protocol has to also have the ability to be able to recognize, and not only in football, but we talked about soccer as well, when a player might have sustained a concussion, when you see two players bang their heads together on the soccer field or the football field, when you see a player fall to the ground and get up and look a little dazed and confused, a little shaky on their feet, there's a good chance that they might have sustained a concussion. So you don't want them to return to that field for the sake of their health. You want to keep them out. And I just did a talk on on new soccer protocols in, in Europe, temporary substitutes and permanent substitutes they're talking about in, in the game. So, you know, they wanted to, to leave the player off the field and do a sideline evaluation and then allow the player to return to play if, if he or she cleared that evaluation. Well, that just doesn't make sense to me because you can't make that evaluation so quickly. This is a condition that develops over time. It could develop over seconds, minutes, hours, or even days before you recognize the, the full repercussions of that concussion and all the symptoms. So you can't make a quick protocol decision on the playing field that it's okay to return. You got to keep that player out. And in soccer now, they recognize we're going to allow extra what they call permanent substitutes. To, to come in to play so that player can be kept out. But now we have, again, the problem that players don't want to come forward and say, hey, hey coach, I'm having headaches. I'm, I'm seeing double, something like that. Or, or coaches don't want to take the player out knowing that the player won't be able to, to return to play. But, you know, we can't put this game and we can't put profits over the safety of the, these players. So any protocol has to put the player's health and safety first. That's the long answer to your short question. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think that was a great, a great answer. It's funny because when I, so for the listeners, I, I talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but I actually had a TBI and I had it playing soccer and I was living in Germany at the time. And I didn't notice how bad it was until the next season of soccer because I got my concussion at the end of my sophomore year the next season of soccer for me started in the beginning of my sophomore year. And when I went back to play soccer, I sucked. I was really bad. My motor skills were really slow. And by then I actually moved to America and I ended up having to go to Walter Reed Medical Center and go through a bunch of rehab stuff. And it took like a year to get my motor skills like back up to play. But I think you're completely right how you don't know the long-term effects of a concussion. Maybe even on that same day, it takes a while for you to see the implications that it had. And I think that soccer um, is a pretty slow reactor to, to concussions, especially in Europe, kind of how you said. I think because it is such a high-paying sport, high sport over there that players and coaches, I think, would be a little bit more reluctant to kind of pull people out because of, a, because of an injury that can't be seen, kind of how you said with your, your first case where he didn't have a limp or anything like that. And if it can't be seen, you know, send the player back in, which obviously can have horrible long-term effects. I'd love to hear more about your current 
position as a lawyer to DeCaro and Kaplan. My first question is, is how long do your guys' cases normally last? Because I was trying to do some research before here and I saw them lasting a short period of time and a crazy long period of time. On average, how long do these last? Well, we're not living in average times right now because <laughs> of COVID. So cases are going to take much longer because there's um, no, no trials taking place right now gotcha. in, in courthouses, jury trials. Everything is being done remotely. The judges aren't even in the courthouses at, at the present time. So everything is on, on really super slow speed. But cases take a while because there's a lot of things that have to take place before a case is, is instituted on my part. Investigation, obtaining all the medical records, making sure that you are getting the proper treatment, speaking at times to your doctors to understand your case, um, look, looking at the accident itself and developing a case by witnesses and preparation and investigation. So that takes a period of time, even after you come to see me before we're able to start a case. But after we, we start a case, there are all kinds of uh, discovery proceedings that take place where we're looking for information for the other side, depositions and, and other types of discovery to prove our case. And of course, they're looking for information about you and about your background and about your injury to defend the case on their part. And then when all that is completed, and that process could take maybe a, a year to, to two years to take place. And then we tell the court or the court tells us that we're ready for trial but there are many cases in front of us, so we have to wait our turn, get a ticket, so to speak, and stand in line until they call us to come to the courthouse to try the case. And that, depending on, on the jurisdiction, can, can take a while, too. In New York, the wait sometimes is a good year or even longer. Wow. So, so you have to figure from the, from the moment you come to see me until we're able to go to court and resolve your case, can take two to three years. Sometimes we, we try to resolve your case earlier through mediation process, private mediation, but you can't do that until all the, until both sides really know all the facts and, and in a better position uh, to evaluate their potential risks of winning and losing the case. And, and also understand something else. If you come to see me today, I don't want to resolve your case tomorrow. And I don't want to do it so quickly because I don't know how you're going to be and what your condition is going to be a year from now. It, it doesn't have to be a brain injury. It could, it could be some other type of injury as well, a fracture of, of some kind. But I, I want to know if you're going to have a, a great recovery, a good recovery, a poor recovery. I want to know how you're going to be functioning at work, if you could ever return to work and the problems that you might have. And only time is going to give me answers to that question. So to, I'm not doing you a, a big favor by trying to resolve your case quickly without knowing what the long-term effect of the injury is going to be on your life. Yeah, I didn't realize they took that long. That's crazy. Is that, you were saying specifically about the state of New York, do most medical malpractice cases take a few years? Or is that that line specifically because New York is so populated? No, malpractice cases take even longer. Okay, wow. Because a malpractice case has a lot of, obviously, medical components to it involving working with many, many different medical experts to develop 
the case. Uh, so that takes an even longer period of time. Oh, wow. That's so you must have to build a really good relationship, I guess, with anybody you're working with if you're working them for years at a time. Yeah, you know, I say my clients become members of my family, so to speak, forever, because we spend a lot of time together, uh, both before and, and, and after the case, uh, because we become friends in, in many respects, but also I become their trusted advisor in, mm -hmm. in, in different aspects of their life. So that relationship doesn't end when the case ends. Yeah, I can see how that could be really fulfilling work. Why did you decide to go into your own practice with Dakara? Well, we, we have a good synergy. You know, we, we both have different aspects that, that we, we're good at. My partner's a better legal writer than I am. She's a better legal researcher than I am. So that works. Well, I have a bigger mouth, so. <laughs> but, but, I like now, Shauna uh, DeCaro, she be, has become the uh, new chairwoman of the board of directors of the Brain Injury Association of America, which, which is a great honor. And she uh, has taken the helm of a great organization, the Brain Injury Association of America, for the year 2021. And, and this is a very interesting year because um, not only are we talking now about traumatic brain injuries, or acquired brain injuries from strokes or other causes. Now we're talking about something very new. We're, we're talking about brain fog and we're talking about something called neuro-COVID. All the individuals who are recovering from COVID-19 and facing the long-term consequences of a brain injury that develops. They are developing the same problems that my clients have developed in terms of memory problems, concentration problems, sleep disturbances, depression, and, and other conditions. And, and like my clients, they're in desperate need of treatment and rehabilitation and, and resources that are really not out there at, at this time to serve them. Um, so there is a great need for the Brain Injury Association to advocate for everybody who has who's sustained brain, brain injury we call brain injury survivors, whether it's caused by an accident or by COVID-19. Wow, that's so interesting. I've actually never heard of neuro-COVID before. So is this, an, is this what happens, like a long-term effect of COVID? Like how, how long after COVID happening do people realize these, they have these symptoms? Soon as they have a physical recovery, they're starting to notice these brain issues have developed. Wow. Uh, and this um, is, is something that right now, because we have so many people recovering from COVID, it is mm -hmm. now on every doctor's radar screen. And more and more people are, are, are making these types of complaints that they had this physical recovery from COVID, but they haven't obtained any mental recovery or not full mental recovery. I was going to ask you if COVID has impacted your work, but obviously it has a lot from people not being able to go into, into the office to uh, COVID actually impacting people that are coming to you. Moving around a little bit, I noticed that you were also a lecturer in law at GW. I'd like to hear more about that. When did you start lecturing at GW? I've been doing this now for 
I think this semester was my seventh semester, seventh year of teaching law students how to represent individuals with a brain injury. Uh, awesome, that's awesome. And it's wonderful because uh, I'm teaching a new generation of lawyers needed trial skills and, and introducing them to, to an area that they really had no knowledge, knowledge about. And, and my students come to take my course for a variety of reasons, including playing sports like soccer and having a concussion sometime in, in their lives and are just interested in, in this topic. And, and they come away with a whole different perspective of it. So it's, it's very gratifying work that we do at the law school. And it's the only law school in the country that offers this type of course. Wow, where is GW located? In our nation's capital, Washington, DC. So do you, is your class an online class? Well, this semester it was online because of COVID, but I will commute every week to Washington to, to teach. I'll get on Amtrak on Sunday night and I'll go down to DC, I'll teach on Monday, and I'll just take the train back on Monday night. Oh my just, goodness, that's a lot of dedication. I love to teach, I love my students. And I, and as I said, I feel really good every day because I wake up and, and, and I love what I do. So if I can impart this knowledge to students, uh, it's, it's really a, a good thing. And, and on our website, and again, brainlaw.com, we have a lot of great information on, on brain injury that, videos that people can watch to understand this, some long papers that we've written on sports concussions and other topics to help people really understand this invisible injury. So you have a lot on your plate. Why did you decide to become a lecturer along with being a practicing lawyer? Again, again, <laughs> it wasn't planned. I didn't have any plans on, on doing this at all. One, one day I, I was at a conference and I, and I was giving a talk to individuals about brain injury and how to effectively represent a person with a brain injury. And a lovely woman met me after and introduced herself to me as working in their GW School of Higher Education where they have master's programs for teachers in education and they have a special certification for teachers to learn about brain injury. And she said to me, would, would you come and talk to my class about the legal aspects of brain injury? I said, well, that, that would, sure, I'll do that. So I went to Washington and I did it. Would you come back again next semester? <laughs> right, I did that. And we did this for a while. And, and, and then through that, I, I met other people at the law school, at, at the university, and one thing lead, leads to another, and all of a sudden, you know, I said, do you want to teach a course at, in the law school about brain injury? Because the football concussion case was percolated through the court system, and, and because of that, there was a great public attention about concussions and about brain injury in this huge NFL class action lawsuit. So, so the law school thought that there would be an interesting addition to their curriculum on, in the field of health and health law. So we sat around and we brainstormed that idea for a while. We came up with this course to teach. But, but again, it was never planned. That's awesome. I live in the D.C. area, like I said to you before we started recording. I live in Baltimore, so I have a lot of friends that ended up going to GW. I actually have a few friends that are going to G GW for their master's now, so I wouldn't be surprised if any of them 
switch over to the law school, law school realm of things. So that is really, really cool to me. And I hope my listeners on here that go to GW will check him out more there and obviously check out his website as well that he's been mentioning because I'm looking forward to reading those papers. And if they go up to the law school and the students at GW Law, I hope to meet them in my class one of these days. <laughs> For sure. So the last position that I want to cover that you hold is the president of American Academy of Brain Injury Attorneys. And I just thought that was a really cool position that I saw on your LinkedIn. Can you tell me a little bit about your position and what this select group does? Yeah, so we, we are a group of lawyers that have gotten together because of our knowledge and experience in this area to, to really workshop these issues and, and teach each other and assist each other in, in this area through education. And if, if someone is in need of an attorney in, in a certain area where, where we don't practice, personally, we, we have attorneys in our academy who, who can assist them in, in this area. But it's a means of uh, really of just working together to, to become better attorneys in this area to, to better assist our clients. I really like that. And when did you become president of this um, group? Oh, uh, maybe 10 years ago. Okay. So it's been a while. Were you one of the founders? Yes. Yes. Oh, that's so cool. That's awesome. I didn't see that on LinkedIn. <laughs> so as president of the group, what do you guys, what, how often do you guys meet? Is this something that you guys meet monthly or is this select group more of something where you just can reach out to people um, if anybody has any questions? Well, we usually get together on a yearly basis because we'll meet when we have annual meetings of the American Association for Justice. Okay. So we all usually attend those meetings, so it gives us a chance to, to be together in person. But otherwise, we'll meet on Zoom or, or something else and just have discussions at, on an on a need, as-needed basis. Yeah, that's really awesome. That's so cool that you were able to found that. Is there any other place that my listeners can find you besides the website that you've been mentioning? Well, they could come. They they could read our posts on LinkedIn, DeCaro and Kaplan. They could do the same on on Facebook on our Facebook page, DeCaro and Kaplan. They could go to our website, BrainLaw.com, and we now have started something called the Brain Injury Insider where I give a, a every week a short topic discussion on another area of brain injury that interests me. Last week, we talked about soccer in, in our episode and these new protocols. So they could sign up for and, and get this in their inbox, the Brain Injury Insider, every week just by going to brainlaw.com. Awesome. I've been watching some of those videos. I would highly recommend everybody checking them out. They're really easy to digest and understand. So even if you don't have a background in law or in medicine or TBIs, I definitely think they're helpful and interesting. Well, thank and you so course, much for being on. And we also have a YouTube channel. So there's a lot yeah. of other videos there as well. <laughs> That's where I was watching them. Awesome. So I will have all these linked in the show notes if you guys want to check him out. And like I said, again, I highly recommend the videos. They're really cool. Thank you so much for taking the time to be to be on the show and for reaching out. I hope you have a fabulous week. And thank you everyone for listening.